please take your Bible and meet me in John chapter 17. We did gather yesterday to remember and celebrate the life of our dear friend Dennis. And uh, it was a wonderful, it really was a wonderful celebration of life that I think touched the lives of all who were there. I was blessed by the number of people who were there and by the many different kinds of people who were there. I was just wonderfully blessed that what became clear to me, among many things, is how obviously intentional Dennis was in living his life as a believer with believers and non-believers alike. Just tremendously blessed that at a celebration of life service, we heard from his Christian friends and from his non-Christian friends. All of whom enjoyed wonderful relationship with Dennis. Memorial services are like that. If nothing else, although it's so much more, but if nothing else, they are testaments to the importance of good relationships. And it amazes me to think that our many relationships were on the mind of the Lord Jesus on the night before his crucifixion and death. His prayer here in John 17 is all about relationship, all about relationship, your relationships. Here he prays for your relationship with God. He prays for your many and varied relationships with other believers and for your many and varied relationships with the non-believing world. He wasn't praying for the 11 disciples who were with him in those moments only. He was praying for all disciples. He prayed for all who believed and for all who would come to believe. So even while facing his own betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Jesus, in a very meaningful way, was praying for you. This prayer reveals the heart of Jesus for you even today. Heavy on his heart was the health of your relationships. Last week, From verses 6 through 19, we talked about being saved to God, sanctified together, and sent to a world in need. 
And in many ways, verses 20 through 26 is a continuation of these themes. And what's clear from the entire passage is the central theme of unity. And so as we consider the final section of this all-important prayer, what exactly do we discover about unity? That's, that's my question. That's my question. As we consider this final section of this all-important prayer, what exactly do we discover about unity? And I believe it's something like this. Our union with Christ, rooted in the oneness of God, unites us together around God's saving purposes in the world. Our union with Christ, rooted in the oneness of God, unites us together around God's saving purposes in the world. And so let's read this together. John chapter 17, from verse 20 through verse 26. And we remember that we're picking this up midstream. Jesus is in prayer, talking with his heavenly Father and ours when he says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, these 11 who are with me right now. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know that you sent me. I'm sorry, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know, does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you yet again for these really special, precious, wonderful moments we have together in your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all your word, all its truth, all its instruction and teaching and reproof and correction. Thank you for your word here in the Gospel of John. Thank you for this wonderful study we've enjoyed over many months now through John's gospel, bit by bit, passage by passage, that, have now, that has now brought us to this point. 
This is all just a wonderful testament to your goodness, your kindness toward us, and that you continue to teach us and reveal yourself to us. And God, I pray that you would make us to be receptive to all that you have for us. That even in these moments this morning, you would speak your word to us yet again. Speak it to us individually and speak it to us collectively. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. I want to take this in two parts this morning. First, the grounds of our unity and then the goal of our unity. The grounds and goal of our unity. The grounds of our unity is the oneness of the Trinity itself. Now, be not intimidated when considering the Trinity, though today's consideration admittedly will be brief. The doctrine of the Trinity, in its simplest form, basically states that there is one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have existed together forever as God, and within this great Trinity, they share perfect relationship. Perfect relationship. Our unity as believers in God is therefore of Trinitarian origin. And Jesus sees it coming about as we share in the glorious unity of God himself. Now look with me at verse 21. While praying for all believers, Jesus desires that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they, that they also may be in us. So Jesus prays for the unity and oneness of all believers and the basis for his prayer is the unity and oneness he shares with the Father. You see that? Jesus and the Father are one. Long before the world was created, in what we might call eternity past, the Father and Son and Spirit existed together in perfect harmony. And within this Trinity, there is perfect communion, community, and perfect delight. They are perfectly one, one in mind and heart and divine nature. And, and this perfect oneness is marked by perfect love notice and it is glorious in perfect measure in fact as as verse 24 makes clear the eternal glory of Jesus Christ flows from the eternal love of the father okay we're wading into some deep waters here but these are refreshing waters now what this means for us is that Jesus wants us to share in God's glory and love as he does. Verse 22. 
the glory that you have given me. What did he do with it? I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 23, he wants the world to know that God loves us even as he loves Jesus. Again, in verse 24, he wants that we would be with him to see his glory that was given to him by the Father in love. And still again, in verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I am them. So, in this moment, on this night before Jesus died, he is deeply aware of the Father's love for him, and he deeply desires that we share in the glory of that love too. Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? Listen, I don't understand all this. That that Jesus is saying, Father, I want them to know that you love them just like you love me. That's amazing. Salvation, at its core, is our participation in the love and glory between the Father and Son. Salvation is coming to know the Father the way the Son has always known the Father, and coming to know the Son the way the Father has always known the Son. Salvation is coming to share in their oneness, because in salvation we are brought into everlasting fellowship with God through our undying union with Christ. Yes, we are saved from the, uh, our bondage to sin and death. Absolutely, but it's so much more than that. It's that we're saved into this perfect fellowship with the triune God. I've often said, as you know, I think I've said it in the last couple of weeks, that salvation is more than just you and God, more than just me and God. It's us and God together. It's about how we relate with God and with one another as God's children. Salvation has both horizontal, I'm sorry, has both vertical and horizontal implications. Okay? Jesus knows this. And that's why he prays along these lines. Contained within this prayer is a deep and loving concern, not just for your vertical relationship with God. Contained within this prayer is a deep and loving concern for your horizontal relationships with other people because Jesus earnestly desires our experience of oneness in God. In a very real way, 
in a very real way, Jesus is praying for your marriage. He's praying for your household. He's praying for your friendships. He's praying for your church. He's praying for how we relate with others in the church and how churches relate with other churches. He's praying for me as a pastor, as a a husband and a father and a pastor, and for you as church members and, and how we relate, for the way we relate to each other. He's praying for all church members in general, desiring that we become grounded in the wonder and glory of divine oneness. Now, already we are one positionally, right? Already we are one positionally uh, in that each believer in Christ is united to Christ and thus united to, to one another with Christ. But Jesus here is saying that he wants us to be one practically as well. As well as positionally. And don't we need this prayer? Don't we need this prayer? Because there is an army, is there not, of unity disruptors that continually threaten our oneness. And this army led by none other than the devil himself, is equipped with weapons of mass destruction. Weapons like jealousy, pride, anger, bitterness, a critical spirit, gossip, an unforgiving spirit, withdrawal, and so many more. All of which pose a very real threat to our relationships in the church. Now I want to say this very tenderly and very carefully. I have been hurt far, far worse by other believers than by unbelievers. Far worse. I've been hurt far, far worse by those in the church than by those outside the church. And I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. The more I talk with some of you, and by the way, this isn't an East Parkway church issue. This is an every church issue. The more I talk with you, learn your history, you learn mine, the more I talk with other pastors, the more I realize that 
the more I come to realize that church wounds are very real. And they run very, very deep. And if nothing else, this prayer of Jesus here reminds us that God is concerned about these things. And he wants to deliver us from these hurts. He wants to deliver me. Listen, I'll confess publicly, I have bitterness in my heart. And even this week, I'm just reminded, God wants to deliver me from my bitterness that I know is there as a defense mechanism. It's there as a defense mechanism. It's like, I've been hurt. I don't want to be hurt again. Boom, the wall goes up. God wants to deliver me from that. He wants to deliver me from these hurts, from believers who hurt me in the past, this bitterness I hold. They've hurt me probably without even knowing it. And I have to believe without any malice whatsoever. And I think he wants, I know, I know. He wants to deliver you too. I know that in this room, there are some church wounds. And I know they still hurt. And I know Whatever the issue is for me, or maybe it's bitterness, whatever it is for you, I know that when, when, when you get close to that place in your own heart, it's like, boom, the wall goes up. And God wants to deliver you, us, from that. So he prays. He prays for us. He prays for you. Praise for me. He looks at those relationships that are hard for you. Relationships which you may be tempted to give up on. Write off, avoid, ignore. And he says in this prayer, there's hope. There's hope. And, and hope manifests itself in things like really giving the benefit of the, doubt, of the doubt or keeping the issue, the issue. Don't make it personal. Keep the issue, the issue. Or not judging the motives of another's heart. Yes, we can judge the behavior. But since when do we know the heart? Or looking for opportunities to cover an offense. I'm preaching to my own soul right now. Looking for opportunities to cover offense. Do I really need to make a big deal out of this? Do I really need to let this dig at me 
God, will you just help me to cover the offense? To exercise patience, to genuinely care for and be compassionate with the weaker brother, which, by the way, is you sometimes. Sometimes we are the weaker brother. To go the extra mile when necessary, you want my coat, take my cloak too. Above all, to love one another even as the Lord has loved us. Jesus aims to save us not from sin and death only. Oh, thankfully he saves us from sin and death. But not from sin and death only, but also from things like bitterness and jealousy and defensiveness and a critical spirit. He saves us from these things so that we would experience the wonder and glory of oneness in God and that we would experience it together. Okay. Now, if the grounds of our unity is the oneness of the triune God, the goal of our unity is our witness to the world. Twice in this section, Jesus connects our relationships within the church to our witness in the world, saying in verse 20, May they be in us, Father, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again in verse 23, May they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, even that Jesus refers in verse 20 to believers. I love this. He, he's, he refers to, he's praying for believers who have yet to believe, but will believe. Spotlights the importance of our witness in the world, does it not? Because it shows that Jesus cares for the unbeliever who will believe at some point in the future. Jesus cares about the future church as well as the present church. And he involves those, catch this, he involves those who believe now in the ministry of those who will believe later. And the way in which they'll come to believe later, notice, is through the testimony, the witness of those who believe now. It is through their word. Father, I'm praying for those who are I'm praying for, for these and for those who are going to come to believe through their word. They're not going to come to believe, although Jesus can do this, and he does. We've heard of this. They may come to believe through a dream. Okay? They may come to believe because they look at the beauty of creation. They're going, oh, my goodness, there must be a creator. Absolutely, they ha that happens. But listen, the primary way that God brings unbelievers to belief 
is through the proclamation of those who believe. That's what we mean when we talk about witnessing. To witness is to give word to the fact that God has sent His Son in love. It's giving word to the fact that Jesus, in love, has willingly entered our sin-stricken world to save sinners from sin and reconcile them to God. It's giving word to the fact that God has reconciled you. And so the easiest and absolutely the most powerful way to witness is to share what God has done with you. And by the grace and power and love and will of God, He takes our words, as feeble and inadequate as they are, and He uses them to draw others to Himself. I want to go one step further in considering this truth. Have you ever stopped to consider that the person who comes to faith in Christ today, okay, so maybe let's do this little exercise, just to yourself. I want you to think, right now, just think about, I don't know, two, five, ten people in your life who don't believe. So you got them there. You're thinking about it. You see their faces. You know their names. Have you ever stopped to consider that the person who comes to faith in Christ, maybe one of those people that you're picturing right now, is not the only one affected by your witness? All of the people in their life are also touched. And then all the people in their lives are also touched. Because that's how God's grace and mercy works. It's like the rock in the pond. And the ripple effect just extends out from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. Psalm 48 talks about telling the next generation about God and His love and righteousness. Psalm 78, aptly titled, Tell the Coming Generation, reads, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Psalm 22, I, <laughs> Psalm 22, I love this, talks about proclaiming God's righteousness to a people yet unborn. Psalm 102 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created will praise the Lord. You see the implication here? Our witnessing efforts today, literally, I'm not making this up, 
have the capacity to reach people for the Lord five years from now, 50 years from now, 500 years from now, and more. Throughout the Bible, there is this noticeable passing of the baton, if you will, from one generation to the next. And the baton, I'm going to tease this analogy, the baton represents the truths that pertain to God, to who God is and to what God has done. And on and in each end of the baton, there must be a willing passer and a willing receiver. In fact... In track and field, in a relay race, my understanding is that the onus or the burden of passing the baton successfully falls primarily on the passer. Right? So the passer is running full speed, his, running his or her assigned lap, sprinting, right, like a madman then runs past their assigned lap to catch up to the next relay runner who has already begun running his lap. And so you've seen the pictures, right? And so the the passer is sprinting to catch up with this guy, and it's his responsibility to firmly place the baton in the receiver's hand so that all the receiver with the hand outstretched just has to grab it and keep on running without breaking stride. So my question for you today is simply, are you a passer or a receiver in this scenario? Now, both are important, obviously. Both are important. And, and to grow in our Christian faith, I think we must be both at the same time. I think. I think we must be both at the same time. We should always be receptive to the great truths of God. I want that baton. While always passing it on to others. Always learning more of who God is while always passing along what we learn. So, so who in your life are you receiving from? And who in your life are you passing to? And now you remember those two or five or ten people who were floating around in your mind? Why not pass it on to one of them? Or all of them? We cannot be content with just loving the baton itself. I want to put this in a church context. I believe sincerely that God is glorified when we work feeble efforts, totally inadequate, when we work to help fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. I believe, sincerely I do, 
that really pleases the Lord. Because I think that's his heart. That's the heart of God. I believe that our love for the Lord should compel us to share the Lord with those who are lost in the world. And as we do, as they come to faith, I believe we have a wonderful, a wonderful responsibility, not just an opportunity, a responsibility, a wonderful responsibility to, to help them grow in their faith. I believe, though I don't always understand why, I believe God has designed it this way. And it's not ultimately up to us, thankfully. I mean, I had someone come up to me after last week's service. Totally agree with her. I absolutely agree with her when she said, don't you think that we're, we're, this, this emphasis on witnessing, don't you think that we're in danger of making it about us? Don't you feel like we're, we're, we're just so close and we could actually do more hurt than help? Like we could be, our timing could be off or we could say the wrong thing and we could actually do more hurt in our witnessing than help. So don't you think that we need to kind of back off a little bit and just trust the Holy Spirit? To which I said, absolutely, I agree. We could do more hurt than help. We could move forward in our own strength. We absolutely need to trust the Holy Spirit. Absolutely we do. But then I asked her, but isn't that true of any aspect of our Christian life? Not just witnessing. Aren't we always in danger of stepping out in our own strength? Aren't we always in danger of when we step out in our own strength, we do more hurt than harm or or hurt than help? Aren't we always needing to rely on the Holy Spirit? Always? at all times, not just when I witness. So thankfully, this is not up to us, ultimately. Thankfully, I love this, when Jesus prays for believers in future generations, he's not at all worried about them. He knows that those who will believe will believe. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that the Great Commission is not our job to accomplish in our strength. But rather it's God's promise to fulfill by His Spirit. And thankfully... For reasons beyond me, in this grand narrative of the fulfilling of that commission, that great commission, God has involved us in the work. That we are privileged to live as characters in God's story as we proclaim from one person to the next and from one generation to the next who God is and what He's done in His Son for the world. God's will will be done, absolutely yes. But oh my goodness, what an amazing thing that we're part of it, right? Which begs the question, 
are we? In what ways? In what ways are you endeavoring to fulfill the Great Commission in your life today? Last week I talked about how hard it is to enjoy a culture of unity and oneness in the church and to be unified in purpose and practice when church members are going their own separate ways, when church attendance is considered optional, when participation in church life is viewed as unnecessary. And I know the fact that you're here again this morning to hear me say the same things means that I'm preaching to the wrong crowd, that that you're probably not the ones who need to hear this, at least not maybe as much as some others. But you know what? You can help. You know how? Simple ways. You can help even just by calling or texting someone someone in the church who isn't here, maybe hasn't been here for a week or two, just telling them they're missed, they're loved, their presence means so much, and that their absence is noticed. You can do that. that that's not... I mean, certainly I could do it too, and I do, but that's not just my responsibility, is it? You can help by promoting unity and oneness in the church, help by promoting a unified purpose in the church. When you meet and talk with other church members in your homes or in the comings and goings of life, you can help just by being a unifier. If unity disruptors are everywhere, and they are, you can help simply by being a unity promoter. If it's true that it takes a village, then should we not all be involved in maintaining this oneness? Should we not all come together with the same person in mind? same purpose in mind. There's an old Peanuts comic. That shows uh, Lucy and Linus together. And. Linus is watching TV. When Lucy strides in and demands that he change the channel. You know Lucy, right? (laughs) Demands that he change the channel. And Linus shouts back, What gives you the right to march in here and demand your way? These five fingers, (laughs) said Lucy. You see, individually, they're nothing. 
But when I curl them like this, <laughs> they form a single unit that becomes a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> All right, what channel do you want? <laughs> Side, Linus, and then here's the best part. The next the final clip in the comic shows him walking away and looking at his own fingers and saying, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> now, just to be clear, I am not suggesting that you use that tact. Okay, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. But I am stressing the importance that we must come together to unite in purpose and practice, if we are to experience more of the great privilege of glorifying God by helping to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. Uh, I just planted some redwood trees in the backyard. And one thing I learned about redwood trees, I may have heard this before, but I didn't really understand it or think about it. One thing I learned about redwood trees, you know, these tall powerful, majestic trees, they gain their strength not by digging on their own down into the soil, but rather by interlocking their roots with the other trees nearby. That's powerful. Unity in the church is important for those in the church because our witness in, in the world is important. But so much more is caught than taught. How can we give a credible witness unless we are unified? How can we talk about a great relationship with God when the relationships among God's people are running amok? If there is not a noticeable difference between how we relate in the church and how people relate in the world, what attraction to the church, and more importantly to God, is there? When the world is thinking about things like terrorism and a fragile economy and political uneasiness or ending world hunger, while church members argue over whether to sing songs or hymns in the worship service, what voice do we have? You know, recently the racial uh, divisions that exist in our country are again coming to the fore for good reason, I might add. Now, whatever you think about the issues themselves, and I know that there's complex, whatever you think about the issues themselves, there is no denying that racism exists. There's no denying that racism exists, and it exists both ways. There's no denying that. So we as believers have a unique opportunity, opportunity to be reconcilers, not rabble-rousers, opportunity to lead the way toward mutual understanding, helpful dialogue, meaningful interaction, even if only in our own personal spheres of influence. 
What if the Christian church led the effort? Think through this with me. What, would, it not, would it not please the Lord if Christian believers from different races came together to talk and understand each other and not simply to make a social statement, but a biblical one that demonstrates God's heart for reconciliation? Because if God can reconcile a hard-hearted, hard-headed, stubborn, ignorant, foolish rebellious, defiant sinner like me to himself, can he not reconcile one sinner to another? The point is that even how we respond to what's going on socially, be very careful with your social media, even how we respond to what's going on socially can be a witness to who God is and to what God has done as long as our response is gospel-informed and gospel-infused. So again, the mere hours from the cross, Jesus looked down the corridors of time and he prayed for unity in the church and for a unified witness in the world. In fact, he died for it. He died and he rose again for our relationships with God, with each other, and with the world at large. Therefore, unity and oneness, as great as it is, and it is, is not an end in itself, but a means of grace to yet another end. Our union with Christ, rooted in the oneness of God, unites us together around God's saving purposes in the world. Amen? Amen. God, thank you for our time. Please continue to impress these truths upon our hearts for your name's sake. Amen.